I really like it when Bill gives us these little musical insights about hymns. Uh, and uh, we have a lot for which to thank the Lord when it comes to our music, uh, on which I'm going to comment in just a moment. But um, let's just pray now and ask the Lord to guide our thinking together. Lord, we are glad to be in your presence. You have made this really astounding promise to us. You have said that you will never leave us or forsake us so that we can say, the Lord is my helper. I won't be afraid. What can man do to me? Thank you that we can look at this passage that Bill just read that focuses our attention so much on the importance of your presence among us. Please guide us now. Help us, Lord, in our weaknesses. We have many. Uh, bless us, we pray, for the sake of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Scientists tell us that music is a very powerful thing. Uh, and all of us have felt it and, and know that at some level. But there's some research that says that our responses to music, uh, they've been able to study the parts of the brain and, and, and what happens actually is parts of the brain are stimulated that produce um, that feel-good hormone uh, dopamine. And it's similar to what happens when people drink alcohol or uh, indulge in cocaine. Well, as scientists go on to study music and its impact, uh, one writer said this, music consists of a, of a series of sounds that, when considered alone, have no inherent value. But when arranged together, through patterns over time, they can act and provide an aesthetic and intellectual reward. Makes you kind of wonder, why has the Lord designed us this way? Well, maybe the Psalms can help us. Psalm 9, for example. I will give thanks to Yahweh with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, Most High. And, you know, there are many other psalms in which singing to the Lord is uh, just a very important thing. It seems like we're made to celebrate the presence of the Lord. Um, he's king over the cosmos, and we look forward to a time when Jesus is going to return and we're going to be able to celebrate together in the fullest way. Uh, there's just great joy in being able to experience the presence of the Lord. The verses that we just read from 2 Samuel 6 are about the Lord's presence. God is at the center of life here as Israel develops as a nation. And don't we all need the Lord to be more in the center of our lives? Second Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 to 23, is also about the holiness of God. And we're going to look at the contrast between the holiness of God that's displayed here and some pretty profound failures in the life of God's people. Uh, failure as a king and failure 
as a leader in his home. We're going to look at the life of David and his failures against the backdrop of God's presence with his people. And when we're done with that, then what we'll do is see there's a great opportunity before you in the week that's ahead. Well, if you think about the life of David and what we've seen so far, there has been a significant change for him, and it appears as if life is coming up all roses right now. In what ways? Well, he's no longer a refugee. He had been fleeing Saul for how long? But no more. Instead, last week we saw him come into Jerusalem and drive out the Jebusites, and now he has a place of his own to live. And on top of that, Hiram, the king of Tyre, sends craftsmen, and they build David a house of his own. And on top of that, he has a growing family. It seems wonderful. He also has this sense that all that's been happening to him has come because of God's favor on his life. Well, what's next for David and what's next for the people of God? That's what's before us this morning. The Lord had said to Israel back in uh, Exodus chapter 19, you are an elect race, you're a royal priesthood, you are a people for my possession. And we know later on that the Bible tells us that God made Israel so that they could be a light to the nations. In order for that to happen, what will need to be in place? God will need to be at the center of his people's living. And that's our need. Well, how is that going to happen? 2 Samuel chapter 6 tells us that the ark is going to now come and be in the city of Jerusalem. And so we want to ask ourselves the question, well, what's this ark and what's this next step for the people of God? Uh, But before we do that, let's think about how these verses fit into the larger context. What's the big picture um, of the section that we're Considering, and I think we've got a slide for that somewhere. Do we have a slide, Austin? Aha, there it is. Here's the big picture. Second um, Samuel chapters five through eight. We looked last week at a summary of some of David's activity and military victories, and you'll see that that comes up again at the end of this section, uh, chapter 8, another summary. And then inside that, David dances before Yahweh, and then balancing it, David sits before Yahweh, and right at the center of this section is God promises David an everlasting dynasty. And so things are on the upward swing. That's what we want to see here. The Lord is working purposefully for his people. But now, how about these verses that we just heard read? How do they fit together? Well, let's look at the next slide. Here we are. There are two parts. uh, Bringing up the ark, part one, and bringing up the ark, part two. And they are nearly parallel. Uh, There's joy in each of them. Then there's tragedy. 
Then there's David's reaction, and then we have a contemplation of Obed-Edom's blessings in contrast to death and contempt in the house of David. So that's kind of the way the whole thing is put together. The Lord is moving his people so that he is more and more in the center of their lives. Um, David is going to bring the ark of God or the ark of the Lord, however you want to call it, into uh, the city of Jerusalem. And so we want to ask ourselves the question, first of all, what was the ark? It was a box, about 27 inches wide, 27 inches tall, 45 inches long. And it contained some important things. It contained, for example, a copy of the Ten Commandments. The Lord said, put it in there. And this ark had originally been in the tabernacle where God travels with his people 40 years in the wilderness. What did the ark communicate? Well, here it is in the, front, in the middle of God's people, uh, it signals that God is the ruler of his people. He's king. It not only signals that, but it also sends the message God is interested in a relationship with his people. And because of his interest in a relationship, he reveals himself to his people. And he does it in this way. Uh, he accommodates himself to their weakness. That's kind of the backdrop. David now is going to bring the ark, and it's been, let's say, it has been uh, outside of the life of God's people for the last 70 years. The ark hasn't been around signaling his presence. Been gone, 70 years. So this is a big deal day. This is like uh, combining the 4th of July with Christmas and Easter all into one celebration. And so, as you look at those first 11 verses, please notice there is great joy. David is dancing before the Lord. He's celebrating. The rest of the people are celebrating. Until we get to a significant bump in the road. Did you see it? They've been bringing this ark back up to Jerusalem so it can be in the center of God's worship. And they get, verse 6, they get to the threshing floor and the oxen stumble and it looks as if the ark is going to fall on the ground and Uzzah puts out his hand to keep it and he's struck dead before the Lord. What is this? He's trying to help the situation. And it says the anger of the Lord burst out against him. See it? The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. How come? Well, because God had said of his people, um, I'm a holy God, and I'm among you as holy God, and you're to treat me as holy, and when it comes to the ark, don't touch it, don't look in it, and don't take it around on a cart. But that's not what happened. 
at all. The people of Israel bring up this cart under David's direction, uh, bring up the ark on a cart under David's direction, and now judgment comes on them. Uh, you think to yourself, what's happening here? God is making this statement, I will be treated in a holy way. I'm going to be present with you, but I don't want you to think about dealing with me the way people think about horseshoes. It's close enough. Close enough is not good enough for God. He asks for perfection. And so he says, there are rules as to how I'm going to be treated. Well, next comes David, and he uh, is angry. And what does he do? He says here, He's angry because the Lord has broken out against Uzzah, and the place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David is afraid, and he says, how can the ark of God come to be with me? And he's not willing to take the ark up into the city. It's an interesting kind of comment, isn't it? The narrator pulls out these details, and he shows us something of David's inner life. David is the king. He can do things however he wants to do them. And so in this case, he has chosen, we don't have to have the ark come into Jerusalem the way the Lord said. A cart will be good enough. And then, when Uzzah dies, how does he respond? With anger. Anger. You say, well, why? It certainly appears as if his anger is directed toward the Lord. There's no record here of his breaking down in grief, pausing the procession to say, we have to somehow comfort Uzzah's family. David simply says, uh-uh, I'm not bringing the cart of God back into Jerusalem. And he goes back home. Striking, isn't it? The presence of God, as far as David is concerned, in this particular case, moves us to see what's under the surface in his life, particularly his anger. You know how it is when people are angry. Often, people are angry because they feel as if their rights have been violated in some way. Maybe David felt that way. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. Maybe he thought to himself, I ought to be able to be a big deal here, bringing the ark up, look at after all I'm doing. But he's angry. And it's, I'm going to take my ball and go home, in effect. Now, you can just see, I hope, how relevant this much of the account is when we think about our own lives. God's presence exposes something ugly in David... And we ask ourselves the question, what does God's presence do in your life? You say, well, how, can I, how am I present with God? I don't have an ark. Yeah, that's right, you don't. Uh, you're in the presence of God now with his people worshiping. What does that do on the inside for you? We take communion together. Where does that move you? 
In which direction does it take you? We spend time as we worship together um, confessing our sins. What goes on inside you? What these verses teach us, among other things, is that David has failed as a king to lead his people well. We can bring the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem the way that I want to do it. We don't have to pay attention to the Lord. Um, it's okay for me to be angry if things don't go my way. It's really very unattractive picture of a person who's been put in a leadership position. But that's not all. After three months' time, David apparently gets over his funk, and he's going to try to bring the ark up to the Lord a second time. And that's found in the next section, verses um, 12 through 23. How's that go? Well, you'll notice that there's a break right there at the beginning of verse 12. Uh, the writer singles out that David is told that God's blessing is now on the house of Obed-Edom. So he goes to Obed-Edom's house, he gets the ark. We're told that now it's being carried properly by the priests. And uh, as they go along, David is rejoicing, he's dancing. It's a wonderful scene. Except when we get to verse 16. The ark of the Lord came into the city of David. Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw, the king, da saw king David dancing and leaping before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. What is that about? It seems like there's another example of somebody pouring rain on David's parade. Well, we're going to get to that in a minute. But let's just finish what happens. So they bring the ark in, verses 17 and 18. Uh, David uh, makes a celebration for people. He provides wine and raisins and bread. And then people go back to their homes. And then we come down to... Verse 20, David returns to bless his household, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how has the king of Israel honored himself, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself? I mean, she can cut to the quick, can't she? What words? How would you like to have? How would you like to come home, and have your wife or husband stand at the door and say, "Let me tell you a few things." Must have been devastating for David. And how does he respond? Well, notice his response is, "It was before the Lord who chose me above your father 
and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I'm going to celebrate, and even if I'm not viewed in a very positive way in your eyes, I'm going to do this. It's interesting, isn't it? David is to lead the nation, and he doesn't do a very good job the first round. Now he's going to come and bless his house, and it's a mess again. And we say to ourselves, why? What is going on here? Well, think back over the life of David. When was the last time we saw Michael, his wife? Can you remember? We're going to take a station break here. When did David, uh, when did, yeah, when did we last see Michael? Do you remember? Let's think about it a little bit. When did she last appear on the scene? Back in chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 19. Now, let's just review in case we've forgotten this. David wants uh, I'm sorry, Saul wants David to marry his daughter uh, Meribah. But that doesn't happen. And so now Michael, it's told that Michael really loves David. And so, David, uh, so Saul puts a bride price on her. David fulfills the bride price. He kills 200 Philistines to do it. And now they're married. And simultaneous to that, Saul is angry at David and wants to kill him. Well, what happens is Michael finds out that Saul wants to kill David, and so she then helps him with a plan so that he can escape. The last time we see Michael before this instance is back in chapter 19. She's helping him get out the window. Here she's looking out the window. She helps him get out the window so he can escape. And where does he go? As a refugee. And while he's away as a refugee, what's life like for him? Well, we know. First of all, he finds a Hinoam, and he takes her as a wife. And then after a Hinoam, who's the next one? Abigail. And then what do we see last week in the life of David? He comes to Jerusalem where he has his own town and his own house, and he takes unto him concubines and wives. And then, if you go back to 1 Samuel chapter th- or 2 Samuel chapter 3, you will find one other detail about Michael's life. After David had left and was a refugee, Saul gave her to another man to be his wife. As the nation of Israel is coming back together under David's leadership now, 2 Samuel 3, David says, oh, by the way, If this is going to work, if I'm really going to be your king, there's one other small detail. It's this one. I want my wife, Michael, back. Interestingly, read the Bible. You'll see that we're told that Michael loved David. There is not a word in the Bible about David loving any person. Not one. Now, he does He does speak in some of the Psalms in which he says, I love the Lord. But there's no record of him loving any person, and we would include that in the life of Michael. So what is life like for her now? 
She comes back as a political pawn to be David's wife among other wives and who knows how many concubines. Can you see what a heavy weight that would be for her? She's not there out of love, but out of convenience. And it helps us, I think, understand her outburst in verse 16 and then her continuing to berate David about how he's embarrassed himself before the female servants of the land. David's response, very similar to what we find in his response to Uzzah touching the ark. Not a word of confession, repentance, acknowledgement. He doesn't own anything. All he does is fires back at Michael. Well, I'm doing this for the Lord. And what's the bottom line here? David has set himself out for us in the first verses as somebody who doesn't lead the nation well. What we see in this second section is an example of his uh, pride in not leading his family well. Howard Hendricks, who was for many years a professor at Dallas Seminary, said one time, If your Christianity doesn't work at home, it doesn't work, so don't export it. What a sad commentary. And the writer, the narrator here, brings this now to a conclusion that fits the first part of the chapter by reminding us in verse 23 that until the day of her death, Michael had no children. Sad, sad, sad. So we have the presence of God bringing to expression David's anger in the first part of the chapter, which is linked to Uzzah's death. And we have David's, um, looks like pride, in the second half of the chapter linked to this travesty at home until Michael's death. No children. What are we to do with this? The presence of God, being in the presence of God is designed to move you to consider your life and to live in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. That's the intent. And in this case, we see just the opposite happening. Being in the presence of the Lord, in David's case, just brings to the surface his rebellion against the Lord. It's almost, I mean, it's certainly a contradiction that being in the presence of the Lord um, motivates people to live in a way that's inconsistent with being in the presence of the Lord, but that's the way it looks. Certainly, certainly, Israel needs a better king than this one. Right? 
And certainly, you need a better king than this one. And thankfully, there is a better king to whom we can entrust ourselves, and he is Jesus. How does Jesus act as the leader of his people? He sacrifices himself rather than risk them being sacrificed for his wrongdoing. He's the perfect lamb who gives himself on the cross that his people might live. And what kind of family man is Jesus? He's a good older brother. He's not only a good older brother, he's one who faithfully prays for those who are under his care. He doesn't exalt himself, he humbles himself so that those who believe in him might be lifted up. And he's the king that's placed before you by way of contrast in these verses this morning. Of what practical value is knowing this information? Certainly, the Lord's call on your life is don't be like David in his rebellion against the Lord, his hard-heartedness, be quick to acknowledge your wrongs and submit in faith to Christ. Certainly, that's the message here. Now, there's probably much more going on, but at least that's what, that much is here. Don't use people in your family to get what you want. Be a servant to those that the Lord has given you to live with. That would be another part of the message. But you see, none of that is possible apart from God's grace. And so really, down underneath this, this passage is a call to repentance. You're in the presence of the Lord. Are you repenting? Are you asking the Lord to bring to your attention sin that's in your life so you can turn from it? This is the opportunity of a lifetime right now. The Lord has placed before us David's bad reaction to being in God's presence to encourage you to come into his presence in humility now. Will you do that? Lord, we trust you. We thank you for this reminder that we need a better king and that we have one. And we pray that you would help us to be quick, to humble ourselves before you. May we uh, be like Isaiah, who said, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the middle of a people of unclean lips, and mine eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. When we think about being in your presence, May we be like St. Peter, who said, Oh, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. May we be quick to acknowledge our sins before you and quick to cast ourselves upon Jesus, our Savior, and quick to live out of the grace that you so freely offer. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.